you're tuning in to an episode from Adventure Emerge 2021, the number one entrepreneurship conference for students and researchers worldwide. This episode is brought to you by our event sponsors, Edinburgh Innovations and Vonage. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to be introducing this session with Nikita, Tessa and Laurel on female founders in sustainable tech. Nikita's got a fantastic session planned for you guys. So enough from me, I'm going to hand it over to Nikita. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Zara. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a glorious Sunday and have been enjoying adventure so far. Massive kudos, first of all, to Zara and the rest of the team for putting this amazing event together. I'm very, very excited to welcome Tessa Clark and Laurel Quinn to this session today. As Zara said, all about female founders building sustainable tech and mission-driven businesses. Quick intro to myself before um, we dive into it. My name is Nikita. I'm leading growth at an early stage education tech company called CoLeap, where we're on a mission to make lifelong learning 10 times more accessible and engaging. And as an aspiring female founder myself, I've been admiring Tessa and Laurel's work from afar for a long time. Olio, which is Tessa's startup, is all about food sharing and reducing waste. Earlier this year, I believe they raised about 40 million in Series B funding, and they've also been named by Richard Branson as startup of the year, I believe. Laurel's startup, Sustainably, is all about integrating good into every transaction that you make. And I'm so excited to be having a chat with them today. So let's kick it off. Tessa, would you like to go ahead and do a little intro of yourself and also maybe tell us what inspired you to start Olio in the first place? Sure. So great to be with you. I'm co-founder and CEO of Olio. And I guess I never grew up sort of thinking that I would be an entrepreneur um, or anything like that. So I grew up on a farm. My parents are farmers up in the, the northeast of the UK. And as a result of that upbringing, I grew up with a keen appreciation for the value of food because my parents had no qualms whatsoever with putting myself, my two younger brothers, to work on the farm. And as a result of that, I have a pathological hatred of food waste. I didn't think anything in particular of that. I then went off to university, had a what could be described as a fairly classic corporate career, started off in strategy consulting and then moved over into industry and spent about 10, 15 years always in the digital space. And the sort of light bulb moment, I guess, if you like, for Olio took place almost seven years ago now. So I was living and work outside of the UK and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, I was not prepared to do that uh, because I hate food waste. And so instead, I sort of bundled up my newborn baby and toddler and I set out into the streets, clutching this food, hoping to find someone to share it with. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. I wasn't to be defeated though. I went back to my apartment and when the removing moving men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was the moment where I thought, this is crazy. I'm going to all these lengths to stop throwing this food away. Why isn't there a simple app where I can just advertise this food? Anyone who's living nearby who wants it can request it and they can pop around and pick it up. And now there is, and it's called Olio. And we passed um, a couple of fairly major milestones two weeks ago. So we've now had 5 million people join Olio. And the environmental impact of all the food sharing and also sharing of other um, household items as well has been equivalent to taking 100 million car miles off the road. And we've also saved 5 billion litres of water. So that's, I guess, our kind of founding story in a nutshell. 
Thank you so much, Tessa. Honestly, love the resilience and grit um, that is so present uh, in your story. That is honestly amazing. And no wonder that you've become such a fantastic entrepreneur. Thank you so much for sharing. And Laurel would love to hand it over to you to tell us a little bit about your founding story of Sustainably. Yeah, so I spent quite a number of years in the investment industry and in my last role, I set up the digital team and then helped scale that company from six to 30 countries in 10 years. And my daughter at the time was working in ethical retail and she was making her home all eco and organic and, and everything. And she was just, I was just really inspired by her, but not only that, but the research that I was doing for my job, um, advising the board on digital transformation. And it just got me to thinking to myself, I'd just done a Google squared course and I was all kind of inspired by lots of different things, including Tom's shoes, where you buy something, you do something good, Acorns investing, which at the time rounded up your spare change to your investment portfolio and you know just lots of things around sort of apps and gamification and kind of how the you know people want in society want to be able to have an impact alongside where they work and and where they shop so that inspired me to create sustainably which is all, all about enabling people to have a positive impact with every financial transaction and enabling the retailer that they shop at and their employer to give to causes that they care about just as part of everyday life so it is it has been a, a wild sort of from coming up with the idea quitting our jobs deciding to create this mvp and, and and going to market and yeah i i think i again like tessa never thought i would be a founder it was just something that i i kind of started writing this business plan and kind of thought to myself you know how about if i give this a try you know what is there what is there to lose except from later on realizing your sanity etc but yeah it, it's definitely something that i hadn't considered you know and and it kind of just happened and to be a founder with my daughter i shall to found this company has just been a really crazy thing to do and something i never thought i would i would do but yeah here i am <laughs> thank you so much laurel i love your story as well <clears throat> Sorry about that. One thing that really struck me when both of you were speaking was actually that you you seem to fall into entrepreneurship a little bit. It wasn't that from the age of five, you were like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I think in this age of kind of somewhat glamorization of the startup space and entrepreneurship as a career path, it's really fantastic to see that both of you actually came across a problem personally. Tessa, obviously in your case, as you mentioned to us, your story of moving and not knowing what to do with all of that leftover food, and Laurel, in your case, wanting to actually make a positive impact alongside your day job, but just not having an avenue to do that. I think it's fantastic how mission driven you are as founders and how much I imagine that's contributed to your success so far. At the same time, I guess the flip side of building a mission driven business is that there are a lot of challenges that come with it because, for example, your KPIs and metrics of success might be quite different to that of a typical for profit startup. So I'm curious, we'll hand it back to you now, Tessa, if you could tell us a bit about maybe some of the key challenges that you've had over the past five or six years in actually building Olio into the company it is today. Um, and just before that, just want to give everyone a quick reminder, if you have any questions for Tessa or Laurel throughout the next um, 40, 45 minutes, if you could put them in the Q&A session, that would be fantastic, a section, sorry, that would be fantastic. Um, and we'll try and cover some of those at the end or through the session. Yeah, so I'd, before I talk about our challenges, actually, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper um, and share my experience around the fact that I never imagined I would be an entrepreneur, because mm -hmm. I, I think there's some really important lessons that I've learned there that might be helpful to the audience. So 
it's kind of weird. Now I understand myself and who I am. It almost seems kind of retrospectively obvious that I would want to do something entrepreneurial. But for a long, 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 long time, that was not apparent to me. And I think there was sort of two main reasons for that. So one, I had had sort of a growing entrepreneurial itch for probably about the last five years of my corporate career. But I didn't do anything about it for two reasons. One, because I didn't think that entrepreneurship, which sounded like a very sort of grandiose thing, I I didn't think that was for sort of someone like me. And the reason for that was because all the role models and spokespeople that you hear about and read about and listen to all kind of, you know, young male sort of American bros, right? And I could not relate to that identity at all. And that's why I feel really, really passionately that it's really important. We've got to kind of showcase all sorts of diverse founders to inspire lots of people. You know, it is so true. You can't be what you can't see. So I'm sort of frustrated that it took me this long to find my way here. And I think it's because of all those, those sort of stereotypes and biases that exist in the industry. And then the second reason why I think it took me so long to get here was because I was sort of wandering around thinking I'd love to do something entrepreneurial and, and have impact and be master of my own destiny and run my own business, but I don't have an idea. And so I spent years kind of beating myself up about the fact that I didn't have an idea. And I have now retrospectively realized that I was going about it completely the wrong way. And what I should have been looking for was a problem that I'm really, really passionate about solving. And it was only once I had sort of that experience that I recounted to you. And then I researched the problem of food waste and realized Mm -hmm. that, you know, it is one of the biggest problems facing humanity today. And I couldn't see anyone else doing anything that that is what kind of galvanized me to sort of take that leap. And I think it's really important not to sort of think you've got an idea or look for an idea, but to actually find a problem that you really, really care about and are passionate about, and then not be wed to your solution and actually be very nimble and flexible in terms of figuring out how you're going to solve that problem. So if I'd done both those things, I probably would have uh, ended up doing something entrepreneurial many, many years earlier. In terms of the main challenges getting to where we are today with Olio, there's been so many I sort of lose count quite frankly one of the main sort of early challenges was how did we grow our business with no like literally sort of no marketing budget and we overcame that through creating an ambassador program so we now have 50,000 ambassadors these are people who are passionate about our mission they want Olio to exist in their local community and so Sasha my co-founder and I spoke to probably the first 100 or so people who reached out to us saying, how can I help spread the word about Olio? And with them, we sort of co-created what is now our ambassador program. And we found that a really, really cost-effective way of growing the business. I mean, it's a really authentic way of growing the business as well. So that sort of helped us really overcome that um, sort of growth with no budget challenge. And then the we had another sort of major conundrum really, really early on in the business, which were early adopters hated food waste. So they didn't generate any food. They had no spare food to give away. And we had somewhat naively hoped that local businesses would use the Olio app at the end of the day to give away their unsold food, bring extra traffic into the store, drive cross-sell, upsell, et cetera. And they didn't do that because they were too busy running sort of their core business to be sort of messing around with an app. And so a food sharing app with no food it's pretty useless. So some pretty terrifying um, sort of uh, nights in those in those early days. But we kind of solved that conundrum by saying, well, why don't we take the early adopters who hate food waste 
So people who have plenty of time but no food match them up with the businesses who have lots of food and no time. And that led to our Food Waste Heroes program. Uh, and today we now have 35,000 trained volunteers who are members of our community who we match with their local supermarket or bakery or deli. And on their allotted time and day, they pop out the house across the road, pick up all the unsold food, take it home, add it to the app. The neighbours request it. And minutes later, the neighbours pop round and pick it up. And that has really helped sort of drive supply into our two-sided marketplace. And it really is kind of supply is what, again, kind of kickstarts uh, growth for Olio. And then I think the third challenge, which I won't go into now, but I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later on, has been fundraising. You know, fundraising as a female founder of a tech for good business has been beyond soul destroying and brutal. So yeah, that, that's been a constant challenge throughout our journey. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Tassa. We'll definitely go into the fundraising piece later. But I actually wanted to quickly pick up and dig a bit deep into something you said earlier about finding that problem rather than finding that idea. And yeah. I think you're so right in saying that actually that is an obstacle a lot of aspiring founders come up against. You know, I need to find that million dollar idea and it's probably going to come to me overnight when I'm least expecting it. When actually, as you said, it's probably a problem you're facing in your everyday life, but you haven't actually identified that. What I think is the second problem that often comes after you've identified that problem and been galvanized to solve it is, OK, how do I practically take the first step? Um, so you mentioned really researching with your co-founder, the food waste problem. What was it that you actually did after that to start building? I'm sure our audience would be really yeah. keen to know. So, so we, we did follow a very structured process. So after I had my experience, we then did some desk research to identify whether food waste was a problem or not, you know, so spoiler alert, yes, it's a massive problem because globally a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away worth a trillion dollars. 800 million people go to bed hungry each night and the environmental impacts of food waste is devastating. If it were to be a country, it would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And we discovered that in a country like the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So that was like a massive tick in the box of kind of, is this a big problem? Is this a real problem? Yes. But that didn't mean to say that anyone cared about that problem. There are plenty of big problems in the world, but they don't get fixed because people don't care about them enough. So we, to test out that, we did a market research survey using um, SurveyMonkey at the time. And we shared it through lots of kind of Facebook groups and absolutely anywhere we could just get to people who might give us their thoughts and feedback about, about food waste. And the key data point coming out of that was that one in three people said that they were physically pained throwing away good food. And we used deliberately sort of extreme language of physically pained to try and filter out that false positive because it's very, very easy when you're doing your early market research to try sort of ask questions in such a way that will give you the answers that you really want to hear. And we didn't want people just going, yeah, food waste is bad and everyone's saying that. We're like, wow, one in three people are physically pained throwing away good food and yet there's been no innovation since the rubbish bin. So that was a big tick in the box of, do people care? Yes, you know, yes, they do. But that still didn't mean to say that people would take the next step in our hypothesis, which is that they would share food with a stranger. And what we didn't want to do was sink our life savings building an app that in all probability no one would want. So we thought, well, how can we test whether people will share food with a stranger without building an expensive app? And what we landed on was we invited 12 people who had completed that market research survey who all lived close to one another. They didn't know each other and they didn't know us. And via email, we asked them if they would take part in this like crazy experiment for two weeks where we'd put them on a WhatsApp group and 
if anyone wanted to kind of share surplus food, then they had neighbors living nearby who would who would be interested in picking it up. And we waited with bated breath for a good sort of, you know, one or two days to see if anyone would share any surplus food in this WhatsApp group. And we did then get our first share. And then after that, we had quite lots of shares in the next two weeks. We then met with all of those 12 people face to face, sort of one on one afterwards. And they gave some really critical feedback. They said, one, you absolutely have to build this. Two, it only needs to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group. Uh, and that was some of the most valuable advice we've had, you know, about just real MVP, keeping it streamlined. And then three, they said, and how can I help? And that was the genesis of the ambassador program that I've already talked about. And so I think the key lesson there is that if you have sort of identified a problem that you are really passionate about solving and you have a hypothesis as to how you might solve it, see if there is a low cost or no cost way of testing that hypothesis before you invest a lot of money building something that perhaps no one wants. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Tessa. I think it's very valuable for everyone listening to have that practical advice, because I guess the other um, element to think about when you're starting a mission driven startup is actually, you know, I would build this and use this myself. But then obviously it's so important to do that primary and secondary market research to validate that other people would pay for it too. Laurel, I would love to know how you actually overcame that problem and also how you took your first steps in building sustainably. Yeah, so we had um, an opportunity to apply to an accelerator at a bank, RBS um, accelerator, which was uh, relatively local to us. So we applied to get into that thinking we'll get all the transaction data and we'll have this built in six months. <laughs> that will be kind of like job done. We can move on to the next thing as in kind of keep developing the product, etc. But it really didn't, didn't happen that way. Um, but what we did get out of that was like Tessa said, you have to do all your research and we use that captive audience of people that were in that large building. Cause it was like the eight of NatWest RBS to do focus groups, to send out surveys to people that we didn't know, to ask them all the questions that you kind of want to validate before you move on to the next stage. And we used a book called the Mom Mom Test, MOM Test, to help us like take all the bias out of the questions for all the surveys that we did. Like Tessa, we did like Survey Monkey, and we got our friends to circulate those to people that we didn't know, and you know, um, got lots of data points back, and then used that to kind of develop start developing the mvp product which we then built for monzo bank customers which was the kind of first um, mvp and i i think there's lots of hurdles along the way it's you know my background is not in coding so i was not you know able to build the the mvp and it's kind of i guess getting the funding and getting the idea like how do you actually validate every single step along the way so you know testing out user initial wireframes prototypes eventually building that product which we then took to a big fintech event in new york called finnovate and we were at the airport coming back and we got this email saying that we just won best of show at finnovate and we thought okay we went to something then at that point so yeah there was there's been lots of hurdles and like tessa would definitely agree that funding is a huge and I feel like I'm in a perpetual fundraising cycle where I just can't ever get out of the fundraising cycle and you know it's not just a thing that is made up it's a real live problem where you know at the moment lifted and 
1.3% of VC funding since 2017 in Europe has gone to female founders. And that's just a terrible, like, you know, a terrible, terrible statistic that, you know, if you're a female founded company, you're living that daily, seeing all the, like the bros that (laughs) Tessa was talking about, that's who gets the funding. So I think it's, you know, yes, things are changing. There's a lot of female founder office hours and, you know, funds that are focused on diverse, diverse teams, but the numbers are still not changing. I mean, I was looking at other stats again, showing that the still the number of investments made into female founded businesses is so much lower than, than our male, than the male counterparts. And, you know, some VCs have zero female, you know, investors in their, you know, teams of 15 investors. Like there's, not even one so one female investor so yeah it's challenging and you know when I kind of set out on this I didn't know all of this you know you kind of go into it in a naive way where you think all of these things and I had come from a very gender imbalanced background anyway so I was used to all this kind of you know dominated you know sort of I'm, I don't I don't mean to be rude but in some cases many neat sort of neanderthal ways of behaving and thinking was kind of my experience of the workplace but going into a fintech startup I thought oh maybe it's not going to be like this but actually yeah sadly it still it it still often is and all the research done by Dana Kanza on how female founders are given all these what do they prevention questions and males are all given all the promotion questions like how big will this be versus females will get asked what are all the risks and the downside and you know it's just it is just a normal that is how things things are done and there's there are techniques in place that you can get around all of that by answering all the prevention questions with promotion answers but it's not things that you know you know and that are happening initially and things that I've just discovered over the past five years five years of doing this but I I did look at you know people did inspire me first of all I remember reading Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book and maybe going back maybe she's not the, the best Facebook is maybe not the best example but you know looking at people who were inspiring me at the time and I joined this um women in tech uh, network called every woman which i found just so inspiring went to this event and there was all these you know kick-ass women winning all these uh, amazing awards and doing all these amazing things so you know there is a lot of people that you now you know it's more accessible that you can find people who have been successful but there are still tons of challenges which you know if i had known everything i mean i still would have done it probably but I would have thought no that that's not the case but yeah sad sadly it is yeah so it's definitely been more challenging and taken but equally and, and it's a roller coaster you know some days are just like you know are great and then other days are really not so yeah there is a lot of hurdles and you have to be really resilient but I, I've kind of I guess in my career I was was really entrepreneurial anyway I didn't really have bosses that would tell me what to do or you know and I had had all my own like sort of side hustles like making clothes making furniture like you know doing lots and lots of things so I was quite entrepreneurial. 
you become legal, compliance, HR, <laughs> admin, <laughs> accounts, the CEO, <laughs> business development, you know, you are all these, you become all of that when you might have previously had other people that would have helped you. But I think one of the keys to it all is to get people around you that can help you, you know, get, seek out help. And there are lots of ways to do that. Yeah, so my aim for this session, um, to be totally frank, is to get any aspiring female founders in the audience to feel like they can take that first step because they've been inspired by the two of you today. And so I don't think we should shy away from actually talking about what you both have picked up on there. One, because it's been such a fundamental part and challenge of both of your journeys. But two, I mean, all the research and the stats show us that this is one fundraising as a female founder, particularly when you're building a tech for good business, is one of the most difficult things to do in the ecosystem. So I'd love to hear from both of you, Tessa, maybe you can take this one first. What is the one thing that you think needs to change in order for all of these diversity initiatives in the fundraising landscape to actually translate into more investments into female founders? So I'm glad you mentioned kind of diversity more broadly, because it is really important to stress that it is completely shitty for female founders, but equally for other types of diverse founders as well. We're kind of all in it together. And if I had a magic wand, something that I know would solve this overnight would be if the investment committee, so the VCs within a firm that have check writing ability, if they were truly diverse and representative of the broader population. <laughs> the problem is that we, whilst the VC firms have made some improvements in the past few years in terms of, for example, bringing in more um, female investors, they are still generally in the lower ranks of the organization. And so what that means is I will pitch into a female investor. She loves it. She gets it. She can absolutely see um, the value that's been created by this business and, and its potential where it's going to go. But she then comes up against her sort of pale male and stale investment mm -hmm. committee and she is unable to get those partners to kind of write check into the businesses that she wants so the minute we have proper diversity in the true gatekeepers of capital i think this will be changed overnight interesting so it actually sounds like from what you're saying tessa that it's a progression within the vc world problem as opposed to a let's break down let's focus on breaking down um barriers into the startup world which i actually completely agree with right i mean yeah it's not, yeah it's not mutually exclusive but if we if we solve that vc problem and getting more women into those and more diverse um people generally into those positions of kind of authority in the VC world that would help to solve the problem for sure. Laura, yeah, and I, I think, oh, sorry. Sorry, go on, Tessa. Well, I was about to say, so yes, I think that. And the other thing is that because some VCs would say, oh, but there's not enough female founders or not enough diverse founders for us mm -hmm. to invest in. Now, that mm -hmm. is both true and not true. So that is true at the later stages, but that is not true at the early stages. I have you know, I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of diverse early stage founders. And the problem is that those female founders, diverse founders are not getting the first and the second check, which means that, of course, then there is no pipeline for those VCs to invest in at the sort of middle and, and later stage companies. And so 
where we really, really need to focus all that attention is who is on the investment committee of those early stage firms. Because once those diverse founders have got some capital and then they're able to build their business and get some escape velocity, then actually the data seems to suggest that they are able to secure follow on financing and build very, very successful businesses. So it, it's critical at the start. But I, I also would like to not have this conversation of sort of fundraising put off diverse founders who are in the audience, because I do think it's important you go in with your eyes wide open and you understand sort of how the game is played right now. But I do also think that things are moving very, very quickly, you know, kind of on a month by month basis. And so you shouldn't let any concerns about fundraising deter you from kind of doing what you want to do. Yeah, great advice. And as Laurel said, you know, she didn't necessarily expect or anticipate all of the challenges that you were going to have when it came to fundraising. So completely agree, Tess. It's so important that we have these discussions in forums like this. So Laurel, what do you think about the VC piece? And do you think there's anything else that if you had a magic wand, you would want to um, change overnight? Yeah, and I think it's kind of getting more female founded businesses to exit, you know, then they become angel investors, and they kind of progress through the investment ranks to become, you know, VCs and etc. So it is kind of like the more that we can do to get those younger businesses to that exit stage with those female founders, the more we can kind of you know fix this whole broken ecosystem but it is very broken and it comes to other societal issues like why don't you know more diverse groups so people found 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 become founders of businesses and it is you know funding is a is an issue you know you can't just set up a business and then it runs on its own without any finance and it is harder to access funding so there are lots of challenges there but you know the more that we can do to help those younger startups kind of get those early funding rounds hopefully the more success and and the more vcs will be there to kind of that have a diverse you know mindset with a diverse background but that is not there at the moment and i don't really know if it's going fast enough i mean i don't think it is i don't think yeah I don't think it's ever quite fast enough. But I do think that there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And I think a lot of the initiatives that we've seen in the ecosystem, for example, you know, female founders office hours are a great step in the right direction. But obviously it requires a collaborative effort from VCs, angel investors, startup founders, mentors to ensure that this is happening at the pace it needs to happen. Because I think what's interesting here is that the two of you as founders are not just, you know, you, you are female founders, but you're also, as we've talked about, building really socially focused businesses. And I think that is something that is incredible, but also probably makes your challenge even harder. And I'd love to know when you're talking to early stage um, founders, how do you think about getting more of these founders to think about ESG um, within their startups and to think about, okay, how can I not just think of this as a traditional um, startup, but actually how can I make some kind of environmental or social impact ingrained into my business model? Happy to have a pop at that. I, I think the, f- the one thing I'd say is that that question seems to imply that there aren't enough founders who are taking that approach currently. And I'm actually incredibly excited by the just energy that is coming often from diverse founders to build these businesses that are having a positive impact on you know sort of people and planet. 
And that is one of the very few things that actually kind of gives me hope when I look at the enormity of the climate crisis, for example, it's very easy to get overwhelmed and pretty depressed. But uh, there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs all over the world who have said they want to step up, be counted, make a difference and play a part in solving the crisis. So that I think is incredibly inspiring. If there's any other founder who is founding a business that doesn't necessarily have sort of purpose at its core and at its heart, I guess the one thing I would share with them is, and this is something that's really kind of surprised us positively at Olio, is just how powerful having a mission is when it comes to attracting and retaining talent. It is unbelievable. You know, we we have people banging our doors down, trying to come and work with us. We are able to way out punch our weight in terms of attracting great talent to the business. And I think that that's only going to happen more and more and more. And I'm having more and more people who are who've done really, really well in classic corporate careers reaching out saying, I've realized the world is on fire and I've got to do something about it. I'm just like quitting the regular corporate world and I'm going to play my part. And so I think if you are a business that is not having a positive impact on people and on planet, I would like to think, you know, within the next like five, 10 years, you're going to like start to lose the license to exist. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would really like to think that some of, especially some of these large established corporates that are busy wrecking the planet what's going to kind of stop them is when they can no longer get people to work there. And the other thing that having a really strong mission does is it gives you incredible morale. And so it just makes it fun. And also if you're a founder, you know, Laurel (laughs) touched on this, there are some really, really deep, dark lows punctuated by the occasional high on the, uh, on the startup journey. And when you're in those lows, it's your mission that keeps you going. It's your mission that kind of gets you out of bed um, every single day makes you kind of keep fighting. And that's just on a very personal, emotional level, I think is really powerful. Yeah. And I would, uh, I would agree with all of that, but I think that all the businesses that I'm kind of, that are on my radar are all purposeful businesses. I don't see a lot of new businesses that, that actually interest me in any way that don't have purpose at the core. And one of the, the kind of, interesting statistics is that businesses with purpose actually succeed across all metrics so they're just generally you know they they get they do get the best people they get more investors they get more you know they are more profitable as organizations because people want to buy from and work for companies who do good so you know it is a it, it is a real thing that you know the more purpose that you have in your organization the more potential for success so yeah I I don't really understand why people would not want to create a a purposeful business now you know given the state of where we're at yeah I love to hear that I'm very excited to hear that you both have have seen a trend of more and more first-time founders actually building businesses with purpose at their core. I think that's exactly what we need to be seeing. And Tessa, your point's really interesting that actually maybe within the next five to 10 years, we will see businesses that don't have that purpose at their core find it really hard to exist and grow just because they won't be able to attract talent. So yeah, let's let's hope that that continues. Um, We've got a question in the Q&A actually, which is really interesting. It says, really enjoying the talk so far. 
are Olio and Sustainably for profit? And if so, how do they make money? The reason this caught my eye is because I imagine another challenge that you face as some kind of social and, and environmental impact founders is that there may be an assumption sometimes that you're running non-profits. And I think, Tessie, you've spoken about this in the past. How do you overcome that assumption that people often make? And yeah, if you could tell us a little bit more about your business models, that would be great as well. Yeah, so this one drives me absolutely bonkers because we tend to think that if you're doing good, you must be a charity, but you probably won't scale particularly. And if you sort of grow really fast and really big and a really successful business, you are doing all sorts of kind of terrible things to the planet and people. And we believe really passionately, Olio, that there's going to be a new paradigm for business, which is profit with purpose. So yes, Olio is a business unashamedly so i can't name a single charity that has grown to have the impact and scale that all our sort of tech forerunners have had you know so so the business model is the model to be applied if you want to have impact at scale um so we uh, generate revenues as a result of our food waste heroes program so which is the program i discussed earlier whereby we have the volunteers who collect and redistribute unsold food from businesses so at the moment businesses are paying a waste contractor to take that food away to landfill or anaerobic digestion and instead they're now paying us to ensure that that food is fully redistributed into the homes of the local communities and you might say you know kind of why are businesses doing this and the best way to explain that is via analogy sort of in the fashion industry child labor was endemic and a core part of the business model is now being measured and monitored out of existence quite rightly so and the same is now starting to happen to food waste in, in the retail and events industries because employees are saying i'm no longer prepared to be paid to throw away food every day customers are calling people out on social media and also the race to net zero hurrah is finally on and so businesses are recognized if they're going to reach the esg goals they've got to stop throwing away food so that is our sort of our primary business model and we're experimenting with business models around the c2c space and it is my hope again as i kind of look to five five to ten years in the future you know i really hope that we stop having this conversation and i feel like the conversation we're having now about profit with purpose and are you a charity is probably a bit like the conversations that were had couple of decades ago about well how do you sort of square off being a successful business and treating your employees well right you know mm -hmm. that like that was the conversation that was being had two decades ago because it seemed like completely at odds to be a big successful business and invest in your employees whereas now we recognize <laughs> that investing in your employees is investing in your business and that's mm -hmm. a wonderful kind of mutually reinforcing positive circle and i like to think that this will just become a no-brainer. People will recognize exactly back to all the stuff that Laurel was saying. It's like on every single metric, purpose-driven businesses are um, outperforming non-purpose-driven businesses and will stop kind of having to explain why we're not a charity. Yeah, our business model is just simple SaaS business model. It's based on volume, volume of users. If you're a business, you pay per employee or per transaction that you're matching with. And we charge charities a small uh, fee per supporter, which is not based on the size of donation, it's based on them getting access.
data, etc., that we give them. We give them anonymized, aggregated um, shopping trend data that can help them unlock new corporate partnerships, and we charge a small fee for that. So, yeah, we again, you know, this is a kind of similar conversation. You know, I don't see how this is going to be scalable. Well, it actually, yeah, it is because this is these are, this is the business model, and this is how it works, and it's really transparent, and it's really simple, and it's really straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it, it, I think, you know, there is that challenge when you're a purpose driven business, it's what, what are your numbers, like, you know, like, kind of, how is this going to work? And then, you know, the impact measures as well that we have in the business, which kind of we are able to share as well. So yeah, I don't think it's easy for people to get their head around it like because I have to keep explaining how we make money but it's just be it's just a soft, software as a service that's all it's simple volume-based fees so yeah. it is not difficult to understand it shouldn't be difficult to understand for an investor yeah no I'm really glad you both touched on that and I think it's it's good for us to shine a light on that again um in a form like this because you know, we need to start somewhere with debunking that myth that, you know, profit and purpose are mutually exclusive. Like this, what you said, Tessa, that, you know, profit with purpose is the way that we're going to move forward, move the economy forward, move, you know, not to be too grandiose, but move capitalism forward, I think is is really, really important to acknowledge. So thank you both for being at forefront of that. We've got about nine, 10 minutes left. So I kind of want to move to the last piece of this discussion, which is around advice to future founders. I think that you both have dropped some pearls of wisdom throughout this um, chat, but I'd love to know that if you had to give one piece of advice to a girl or a young woman who was considering starting their own business or jumping into entrepreneurship, starting a mission-driven business, what would that piece of advice be? So if I can be a bit cheeky, I'll give some advice and an action. Um, so the, ac better, <laughs> the, the, the action, um, in addition to reading the book that Laurel uh, mentioned, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, which is amazing, would be to read another book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And the advice would be to... Um, not sort of delude yourself into thinking that there's such a thing as a silver bullet. So I can remember, I mean, for several years on Olio, both Sasha and I, it was like the next feature, the next marketing campaign, the next initiative, the next hire is going to be the silver bullet that's going to drive us into stratospheric growth. And the reality is there's just a an awful lot of lead bullets that you've just got to keep hailing at this thing. And I think that's really important to kind of get your head around because it, it requires a real mental adjustment but once you've made it it will enable you to have a lot more resilience and a lot more grit and I think just a lot more sort of peace with yourself as you kind of go through the journey love that love the um, imagery of having to hail <laughs> protect yourself from the leg bullets but I think you're so right Tessa it's all about these kind of gradual changes and the fact that actually nothing is an overnight success right it takes a lot of hard graft and it is a big slog to get to you know where you are today and so yeah I think it's important yeah, to and the one point I'd add to that is in addition to kind of hard graft a lot of that hard graft is just experimentation yeah right it, you've, you've got to really have that sort of curiosity learning mindset and your objective certainly in the early days is just to experiment and learn as quickly as possible and you know we don't ever there's a lot of talk about actually kind of the word of you know the failure word in the startup world and we just really don't even use that word at all internally at Olio because we're just constantly doing things that don't work but it's all about learning and getting us as quickly as possible to the things that do work yeah 
Wonderful. And Laurel, what about you? What is one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring founder? I mean, it's definitely not a, a quick, you know, a quick thing that you're entering into here. They call, you know, startup grind is is a grind. You know, that kind of the thing, and you know, you really do need to be resilient and not take things personally. Kind of, you know, eventually after time, like Tessa said, you you can get sort of immune to it. Like you can take, you can literally take anything, and it, it, you will it did so I guess you have to be prepared for for not knowing you know you come into what the customer is saying test out lots of things you know that experiment mindset is key um I kind of had to do that excuse me which is just all about that whole sort of test and iteration process and you know the more experiments you can do to to rule out certain things or to confirm certain hypothesis or assumptions that you have or to rule them out the kind of faster you get to the end results so learning how to do that with that curiosity and experiment experimental mindset will get you there will get you there faster and not kind of giving up um because a lot of things will happen and you'll just be like why am i doing this but you know if you keep going for it eventually you'll you'll get there yeah no love that and you've both um already answered my favorite last question which is if you had to recommend a book um, what would it be but i think those are all fantastic recommendations sprint the lean startup and the mum test all foundational startup reading i think so i'm going to switch it out with another question actually just to round us off today and that question is when you're you know at one of those really low points in your founder journey and you're just in the trenches doing all of that stuff you know playing every single role what is one thing that you do to motivate yourself and your team? So for me, it comes back to our mission. Like failure just is not an option for us. And so that gives you an incredibly sort of deep well mm -hmm. to draw on in the difficult times. The other thing that I would say is that myself and the whole Elio team, we really, really, really uh, prioritize our well-being our kind of physical and mental well-being and so without fail pretty much I will carve out time during my working day to exercise and to get outside and to get some fresh air and I think that's really really important and I make sure that I always get a good night's sleep as well and I think just kind of looking after yourself is probably one of the most important things that you can do especially as an early stage um, startup founder yeah definitely i'm a big believer that if you if you don't take care of yourself it's very difficult to take care of anyone else around you and your business right so um yeah fantastic advice there laurel what about you yeah of health and well-being i've started swimming in the sea better or worse is kind of kind of a bit extreme out there but yeah doing something that kind of just forget about work and and kind of being able to you know not have you know not think about things for for a while but you know we have a really open team you are honest and you know you can share things and i think you know having that type of relationship is really critical because it can be really lonely and having a co-founder that you can talk to is you know is is that gets bigger than doing on your you know doing with this is really really important um, there are going to be some really hard times so yeah make sure you surround 
yourself with people who are there for you and can, you know. Yeah, really, really great point. And I do promise this will be the last question, but I think it's an important one to ask, which is what can people in the audience do today um, or this week to really help both of you out? For me, it's really simple, sort of, you know, download the Olio app and get sharing, either give away uh, spare food and other household items that you have you don't want or need, or we've just got a new section we've just launched called Borrow, which connects people with their neighbours to lend and borrow everyday household items. And we've also just this week, sort of coinciding with COP26, launched our first ever TV campaign. It's incredibly emotional and hard hitting. So if you go to our website, you will see that there and please do share that message far and wide. Thanks, Tessa. Thank you. Yeah, and similarly, download the Sustainably app and then, you know, you can support causes that you care about with your spare change. It's really simple. You can help protect the rainforest or remove plastics from the ocean or, you know, help people who are homeless or with mental health issues or anything. You know, there's a lot of things in there. So, yeah, it's really simple ask. Amazing. Thank you both so much for the fantastic work you're doing. I'm hoping that this will result in a lot of downloads later today. And thank you so much as well for giving up your time today um, and giving us some great advice about your founding journeys and what it's actually been like to be a female founder on, on this journey. And thank you, Zara, as well, for giving us the space to do this. And we'll wrap up there. Thank you so thank much, you. all three of you. This was absolutely incredible.